Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, September 6th, and we are talking about results from 2019 IPOs. I'm your host, Don Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Evan New with me on Skype. Evan, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. No? Nothing, nothing too big? I mean, you had like the birthday weekend. Anything big going on this weekend? No, just taking it easy yeah. after a short, short week since we had Labor Day holiday. But a uh, short week, but I still need, I'm still ready for the weekend. Yeah, well, I'm always ready for the weekend. It's one of the beauties of taping on Friday is like, you know, we kind of get to catch up a little bit, coast into the weekend, especially now when we're recording in the afternoon. Sometimes we do it in the morning, but it's nice. We kind of ease into things. And I like to think that if we're getting listeners listening on their way home, maybe commuting or something like that, they too are heading into the weekend. Um, and it's a nice attitude to have. Austin Morgan, our producer, has his weekend shirt on right now, and he is in full <laughs> summer mode, trying to get those last couple days out of those shirts. Oh, yeah. And this weekend... <laughs> The pools open up for dogs after Labor Day, close for people, open for dogs. So I got at least one thing to do on Saturday. When one door closes, another one opens. Who knew? I, I had no idea that the dog season yeah, was starting. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> Missed that one. It's only one weekend only for four hours. Oh, well, there you go. You got to take advantage. Um, today on the show, we are going to be talking about the first quarterly results from Slack and then digging a little bit into what's been going on broadly with the 2019 IPOs and some of the 2018 IPOs as well, a highly anticipated class of public offerings, a lot of stocks that also have not done particularly well. And and really, the impetus for all this was Slack's results, Evan. I mean, uh, the stock is down about 10% from where they were before they reported earnings. Obviously, the market was not particularly pleased with the results that Slack threw out there. Right. And this is their first <clears throat> earnings release as a public company. I mean, they had released their first quarter results as they were about to go public, but once they started trading, this is now the first time that they're kind of uh, reporting. And we saw second quarter revenue come in at $145 million, which is up 58%. Uh, but now they're forecasting third quarter revenue to you know, be up about 40%. So, you know, we're seeing you know the top line decelerate a little bit here, uh, which I think is a lot of what is rattling investors. Yeah, you know when when you see those big growth numbers uh, out of the gate, you get excited, and you know the valuation that a company like Slack trades at is kind of contingent on them continuing those results. Um, you look at what them going down to like the forty eight or forty six percent year over year range does for them for the full year. They're saying, okay, for the full year, we're looking at growth of fifty one to fifty two percent. You go back to the previous year, eighty two percent year over year growth. The year before that, one hundred and ten percent year over year growth. So this is definitely a little bit of a slowdown from what people have gotten used to seeing from them on the books. Right, exactly, and the same is true for Billings. You know, Billings this year is supposed to grow somewhere in this forty-three to forty-seven percent range, down from seventy-nine percent last year and one hundred and two percent the year before. So, you know, at the same time, deceleration is natural as you're growing your revenue base, and these growth forecasts are by no means unhealthy in absolute terms. I mean, these are still some great numbers to put up, but I think the real challenge that Slack is facing is that when you're combining this kind of directional deceleration with Slack's lofty valuation multiples, you know, just for example, even now when they're trading close to their all-time lows, the stock is trading at 30 times sales, which is still a pretty big premium compared to other peer stocks that are, you know, software as a service, targeted enterprise, collaboration, you know, that whole group of companies, uh, they're still at a premium. And they went public at around 45 times sales. So, I'm not really surprised to see that we're see- we're having some multiple compression here uh, because they're slowing down. They were they started trading, 
with such a high valuation, and now there's all these other threats coming from Microsoft. There's a lot going on here that I think is kind of explaining why investors are a little freaked out right now. Yeah, and when the top line dips like this, it also means that the specific inputs that go into that revenue number are showing that same deceleration. Um, two big numbers that kind of stood out to me. You go over to their customer additions, their net customer additions. That's five thousand for the quarter, which is the lowest quarterly figure I've seen them post just in aggregate. And then if you go to the year-over-year growth, um, that's also the lowest number they've posted. It's thirty-seven percent, where it had been in the forty and fifty percent range in previous quarters. The all-important number that we love to look at for these SaaS businesses, net revenue retention rate, basically their comps number for their customer cohorts, 136% year-over-year. That's a great number, but if you look at how they've trended over time, it's down from 138% the uh, quarter before and 146% a year ago. So, again, like more of these very impressive growth numbers kind of coming down to reality a little bit. Right, exactly. I, th- I think that's really the key here is that the direction that they're heading because they're still good numbers, like you mentioned. You know, but you know the market is just was just previously pricing in even higher expectations. One of the important things when a company goes public is to understand that there's probably going to be some stock-based compensation coming out when you look at the financial reports. Evan, I know with this earnings report, you specifically dug into that a little bit. Right, so you know <clears throat> that's common for all companies because it triggers a lot of these kind of vesting requirements for all this equity they've been giving their employees all this time. So uh, that that's a very common thing in this case. Uh, that that's a big part of their net loss, and you know they they recognize over three hundred million in stock based compensation expenses, uh, which are one time events. So you know investors typically kind of brush that aside, uh, but that also you know so if you ignore that. Their non-GAAP operating loss was just $55 million. Uh, still losing money, but I think they're becoming a little bit more conscious of you know, trying to control their costs as well now that they're you know, getting more scrutiny as a public company. And then another kind of one-off item that happened this quarter was there was a service outage at the end of June. Uh, I don't know if you remember, because obviously we use Slack at, at The Fool, so you know, we were hit by this outage too. And <clears throat> to compensate for this, they, they gave out $8 million in credits uh, to customers to kind of make up for the service disruption, which also impacted full-year business billings guidance by about $5 million. So, not a huge deal, but just a kind of little blip there, because they did have that outage. You mentioned Microsoft before, and and I think that as Slack gets bigger, and they start going after these very large accounts, you know, of their customer base, a very small portion of their customers are very big accounts. I think accounts that would spend over $100,000, if I remember the metric correctly. Um, that right now is very much Microsoft's world. You know, they are in with Outlook at all of these huge businesses. That's who Slack is going to be going after to really meaningfully grow their business. Because if you get in at some of the Fortune 100 or 500 companies in a really meaningful way, well, bam, that's thousands of users immediately with just that one account. Um, just anecdotally, I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, it seems like I'm getting a little bit more of a nudge to start using Microsoft Teams because we use Outlook and we use Slack here at HQ. You know, I have Outlook on my computer and I'm starting to get that prompt, you know, oh, do you want to sign into Microsoft Teams when I boot up my computer in a way that I wasn't uh, two months ago? And I think that's a lot of the big threat that Slack is facing when it comes to Microsoft Teams and Office 365. You know, there's a survey that came out a few months ago about how a lot of these IT executives and decision makers 
who are ultimately who's making this purchasing decision, the customers, um, a lot of them are actually really considering ramping down their spending on Slack and just put it, putting it back into Office 365. And I think most people agree that Slack is better than Teams, but Teams is bundled in with 365, so it's, it, it's at little to no cost to, to have it on there. And if it's a good enough alternative versus Slack, which is more expensive, even if it's better, then I think you know for an IT executive that's like you know really looking at their spending budget, that's a pretty compelling thing. If it's good enough and a lot cheaper, and I think that that's what's the challenge here for Slack. And on the call, you know, CEO Stuart Butterfield uh, you know, provided a couple of examples of like customer wins of like, oh, they chose Slack over 365 because. We're the only one that can, you know, integrate with all these apps that they've developed. A lot of interop- interoperability. It's an open platform, so they do have some advantages there. But it, but I think that they're they're you know, pretty clearly showing that yeah, yes, this is something we're worried about. We want to address it and dispel these fears. Yeah, and it's natural. You know, so often we think of uh, switching costs as being something that is very helpful for a SaaS business, right? Where you get in there and you have customers who use the product, love the product, and become dependent on it. I think that this is actually a situation where, yes, it works for Slack because the people that use it obviously love it. We see that net retention rate going up over time. But, you know, in the case of acquiring new customers, that Office Outlook 365 suite is pretty sticky. And if you have people that are so used to using that, it's already installed on their computers, and there's something rolled into it that is Slack-like in some way, well, some corporations might look at that and be like, it doesn't cost us all that much more to do, and we don't have to retrain thousands of employees to use this other piece of software. I I think it's a rare instance where it may work against Slack a bit. Right, and you know, this is a long game. You know, Microsoft's in this for a long game, and they have this huge business. It's all enterprise collaboration, and what they've been doing over the past three years is just replicating all of Slack's best features. Not unlike what Facebook has done to Snapchat, and we know how that's going for them, as we've talked about at length. And you know, over time, Microsoft is just going to keep doing this, and they're just going to keep copying all the things that people love about Slack and then undercut them on pricing and then you know sell that to all of their their much larger customer base uh, as a way to kind of chip chip away at Slack's popularity and Teams already has more daily active users than Slack um, I mean that's that doesn't say how many customers there are but you know the point is that it's already pretty competitive in terms of how big it is in terms of users so I think that over time yeah I mean they could definitely keep chipping away and that's what they're going to keep doing so shares of Slack now trade below where most people were probably able to first buy in somewhere in the mid to high 30s. I think they're down about 20% from that point. And I think looking at 2019 in general, I have seen the phrase broken or underwater IPO more than I have at any other point following the financial markets. Um, it seems like we have had a ton of companies go public and then, to be honest, just post pretty underwhelming results that have taken their current share price and drop it well below offering price, Evan. Right, exactly. If you go back over the past couple of years, there's, there's, most of them are actually down. Like The, the kind of high-profile startups that most people recognize as household names. For example, Xiaomi, you know, Chinese smartphone maker, was once heralded as like the most valuable startup in the world. And they went public last year, and now their shares are down like 60%. Dropbox, which famously turned down an acquisition offer from Steve Jobs, they're down about a third when they went public last year. Spotify, leader in paid music streaming, they're only down about 8% from their direct listing last year. Uh, but yeah, those, if, that's, that's just three examples from last year. If we look at this year, we have Slack, which we're talking about. They're down about 30% from when they started trading. 
Uber's down 25%. Lyft's down 40%. Pinterest is uh, kind of bucking the trend here. They're up about 25%. And, I mean, this has a lot of implications going forward. There's a lot of companies going public on the horizon that people are excited about. We have WeWork, Airbnb, uh, Peloton, Robinhood, Postmates. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and what's interesting about WeWork in particular is, so we've, we've seen this very specific class of heralded unicorns um, go public and you know be on these valuations that seem to have been propped up a little bit by VC money, then hit the reality of the markets and maybe some slowing growth rates and deal with the fact that, oh, your, your valuation is going to take a haircut if that's happening. With WeWork, planning to go public, um, they went from having a certain idea of what they might go public at to then, according to reports this week, taking a haircut on that and saying, we're probably going to be looking at the lower end of the range that we were originally looking for. And that range is actually below what they were, I think, raising funds at with SoftBank just a couple months ago. So, we're seeing this effect play out before this company maybe even goes public. Right, a lot of these down rounds where they're, you know, <clears throat> the companies are getting valued at lower than what they were in the private markets, uh, which is not a good thing. That if you're a, a private investor or a public investor, even it just doesn't look good for anyone for for the valuations to come down before you even hit the public markets. No, you don't want to see that, and you know we're used to that to some extent as public investors because you know you can buy shares of a company and six months later get a better price on those shares because they're hitting some short-term headwinds, hopefully. And you know maybe you're lowering your cost basis a little bit. Venture capitalists aren't quite as used to that happening and are probably not as thrilled. Um, but I think it's worth unpacking why that's happening a little bit, Evan. Right. I mean, the most obvious explanation here is that you know when there's more hype around a company going public, you know, for example, these startups that have a lot, this, a lot of this brand recognition, uh, the higher the the more hype there is, the higher the IPO price or direct listing price, whatever the case may be, and the. You know, if the higher the prices, the the more you're pricing in these really high expectations, and a lot of these companies are simply unable to meet these expectations once the reality hits. But there's also another kind of bigger uh, trend that's happening here, which is that there's been a massive boom in venture capital funding over the past five years. So, for example, there's been there are a lot more uh, funding rounds these days that are 100 million or greater. Uh, that, whereas it used to be that most rounds were less than 100 million, so so the rounds are getting much bigger, and all of this venture money that it, that's coming in and flowing into these companies is letting these companies stay private for a lot longer than they used to be able to historically, which basically means that the venture capitalists are capturing more of the gains while the companies are in this hyper growth mode, since they're staying private a lot longer during the that kind of high growth phase, and just like we're starting to see with Slack. Growth starts to slow right when they hit the public markets, and when you combine all of these factors—you know, big, you know, a lot of hype, lofty valuation, selling performance—I think it's just a recipe for underperformance. And you know, we mentioned Pinterest is kind of one of the ones that's up. Pinterest was kind of one of the least hyped of all the deals that we mentioned. Yeah, and and I think that this is compounded a little bit too by the fact that so much of so much of the tech zeitgeist really is look at Tam, worry about everything else later. And so, focus on total addressable market, get these businesses that scale incredibly well, and then, you know, over time, bring down your sales spend, bring down your marketing spend. They will become profitable, hopefully. It depends on the business model here. But when that is the goal, uh, the top line growth or the customer acquisition growth is going to fuel a lot of the valuation. And when that number starts to dip, when it starts to decelerate a little bit, 
you get closer and closer to the point where the business really starts to need to make money instead of just acquire new customers. And we haven't seen that a lot of these businesses have been able to prove they're able to do that. And plus, a lot of these companies aren't even tech companies, in my opinion. I mean, everyone wants to be a tech company because, you know, tech companies tend to get higher multiples and better valuations. But like WeWork is just a real estate, you know, subleasing play. And but they call themselves a tech company. I remember reading this thing where they said that they use machine learning and AI to figure out when to like make coffee in the morning, which is like. What? Like, <laughs> why do you need AI to tell you to make coffee in the morning for your people that are renting the space from you? But it's just an example of it. Just, it's kind of a, a stretched comparison to say some of these companies are tech companies, but they all want to make that argument so they can justify these valuations. I, th- I think it's important for investors too to understand the size of the business that they're buying into when they buy shares. You know, if you're looking at share price, you will miss market cap and. Um, there are some folks out there that have looked at you know big tech as an example. You know, if you're looking at Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and said like, sure, yeah, those have been great stocks to own over the last couple of years, but these are companies that trade between 850 billion and a trillion dollars. It's going to be quite hard. It's going to be hard for them to double. You know, it's going to be hard for them to triple. If you're looking at stocks in the two billion to 10 billion range, it's much more likely that they are going to put up pretty killer returns over time, just because of the law of large numbers. And I think that holds also for a lot of these um, these companies that have gone public in 2018 and 2019. You know, for them to have valuations of 20, 30 billion in the case of Uber going public at 80 billion, that is immediately putting a company within the hundred most valuable businesses uh, on the major U.S. exchanges. It's a lot harder for them to go and double at 80 billion um, because they waited so long to go public. Rather than you know a software company that debuts at three billion dollars, right? And particularly when for a lot of these companies the fundamentals just haven't caught up to the valuations that they were able to get in the private markets. And when they when they go public, they just the fundamentals aren't there yet. Yeah, I think the important thing for people to remember: Amazon IPO'd at four hundred and thirty-eight million dollars back in nineteen ninety-seven. The largest company on the U.S. market at the time was GE. Valuation of somewhere between like two hundred and two hundred twenty billion. So, a tiny portion of the most valuable company um, on the publicly traded markets at that time. You look at Uber, eighty billion dollar valuation. Some of the largest companies on the market were trading at nine hundred billion to one trillion. Yeah, I mean that's still eight percent of of the most valuable business out there. So when you start looking at those larger companies, yeah, it's just going to be more difficult for them to live up to those valuations. It's going to be more, a little bit more difficult for them to double or triple the way that you might expect some of the major tech companies of the past have been able to do. All right, makes me wish I was a VC. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a wholly that's a wholly different world. I mean, that's the you know private investing. We've talked a little bit about equity crowdfunding on the podcast before, but. Um, that that asset class is still kind of closed off to folks like you and me, Evan. I actually do have um, some of my family members are venture capitalists, which is kind of interesting. Get have some interesting conversations with them sometimes. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's that must be a really fun Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good good, good family <laughs> reunion talk, good small talk. We'll continue to uh, check up on these IPOs as they give us some quarterly results. Maybe we'll do like a little year in review as we get closer to the end of 2019. Uh, We'll save the discussion for then, though. Evan, thanks for hopping on today's show. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. 
If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes. And there's also all this bonus content on our YouTube channel. Tons of stuff from the podcast, as well as some videos we make specifically for YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.